A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I've got a great guest with me today. I've got, um, you know, he's an expert on, on entrepreneurship, an author of two books, Winning in Entrepreneurship and The Human Vector. Joining me today is Rod Robertson. How are you today, Rod? Hey, I've been looking forward to it, Chris. I have too. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for being with me. I've, I've enjoyed our conversations up until this point, so I'm so happy to have you on the show. Um, Rod, Rod, you know, he's, he's been around for a while. You've, you've become kind of a premier expert on entrepreneurship and no one becomes an expert without a, a, an incredible, incredible history behind them. And, um, you know, you, you, like anybody else, you've worked hard to get to where you are today. And, um, I'd love to know a little bit about that, you know, share something with our audience on how, how somebody becomes an expert in entrepreneurship. Well, I think when you become an expert in something, you have to be that person. So, uh, you know, for one way or another, by default almost, I was channeled into entrepreneurship because of my uh, genetic composite and who my DNA is. I mean, when I was when I was young, I was never fitting in anywhere. I was always a disruptor in the classroom, getting bored. You know, throwing in seventh grade, I saw this thing, my report card, you know, hitting a teacher with spitballs because I was bored. Uh, I mean, I was always in trouble, always in detention, uh, multiple schools because I was bored. And I understood that people weren't getting to the point what they did. And this dissatisfaction in the system for me all followed me throughout. I studied anarchism in, uh, in college. And then I took a freighter to China when I graduated became a newspaper reporter, was recruited, re, uh, recruited by our government to do certain things. And uh, I had a very bizarre upbringing. And when I came back to the United States, I was 25 years old. I was a bit of a madman and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't get a job. And every job I did, I got fired from. And then I found a couple people that harnessed my energy. And I realized I wasn't fit for big organizations. I needed to be in a place where there was free thinking around aggression, uh, sales. And I turned into uh, a very, very good salespeople. And the people were smart enough to harness my energy and put me in the field of battle for small business. And, uh, and I went out there and I really developed into a, you know, a kick-ass salesperson. And I, I did great in my 20s, my later 20s after my defunct start. Uh, but it, it was hard. So I always remember my years when I was uh, what Winston Churchill, Churchill called his wilderness years. Yeah, yeah. When, uh, or his, his black dog where, uh, you know, he was depressed. He didn't understand why he didn't fit in and he was wandering from thing to thing. And for me, I, I had the same thing. And I think a lot of people that become entrepreneurs suffer through this same malady. We don't follow the straight path. And if we're on a certain job trajectory, we're very restless inside and, and we're not satisfied. So for me, entrepreneurship is you know baked into your DNA and it's a matter of bringing it out in a healthy fashion to serve the businesses that you are and to uh, try to get to the goals where you want to go. What was your first entrepreneurial venture? Oh, I was, you know, it, it was sort of a mainstream game. I was uh, first a salesperson. I was a commercial real estate broker, did well there. I did fine. Then I was recruited by uh, some pretty tough guys to uh, become the president of a, uh, a real estate development company that operated on the fringes. Uh, we, we were sort of the black sheep of the, of the Boston uh, uh real estate world because we were all outsiders and we were scrappers. And so I used to sign hazardous waste. We'd go to a building and my role when I was in my thirties, there would be the, the, the place would be reeking of hazardous waste and be bubbling like out of the ground, like a bad movie. And I would sign um, personally on the line to, to take the full brunt of it. And the lawyers, I remember the lawyers and everyone would be going, Oh my God, this guy's nuts. But I kept doing it. We it was fine. And I made my first millions by signing on those hazardous waste and throwing myself on the grenade for the team. The older guys were like, okay, this guy's got game and he'll do it. And he's a talker and he's, he's got cojones and let's, let's, let's harness them up for some other things. And then, you know, we would buy pools of uh, banknotes 
that uh, we, there would be a yacht in Cyprus. We'd buy the banknote for $100,000, so it's worth a million. We'd have to find out who it was that had it, and then we would track them down with detectives, and then we would take possession of the, oh, I was in my 20s. I was in my glory, and then in my 30s. And so I moved along there, but then I got into more traditional businesses where, Again, my, those guys that I was working with were not very nice to me. Mm-hmm. And the, they were supposed to give me a check for 300000 at dinner. And I had a new family and I was so happy. And the check was for 60000 And they looked at me and I looked at them and they said, you didn't read the small print. I almost killed them. I didn't. I left the table. I cashed the check and I quit. And I took the 60000 and I borrowed my sister's wedding deposit money. And I went out and I bought a defunct pet food company. Mm. And I took this company out of receivership. It was like, it was a sad little place. And, and I just, by heroic efforts on my part and the people that we work with, I mean, my back was against the wall. I signed my new house up personally on the mortgage. You know, we built it up uh, as a group and, uh, you know, from a million to 10 million in sales. And then I sold it. And from there, I was I sort of had my jump badge into entrepreneurship. Yeah. And from there, the, the whole playing field opened up for me. Well, what was, I'm curious, what was the pet food company? Uh, it was called Great Eastern Pet. At first it was called New England Kennel. Uh-huh. God, horrible name. And we changed it. And then I brought in new trucks. And then I brought in all natural uh, food. And at the time, natural food was just coming in. It was, and uh, we just rolled with the, all the all natural food. We went from 100 stores to 1,500 stores in three years. And uh-huh. so the place was rocking. I was having a great time. But you know what? I found out that I was horrible with the numbers and the bank was on me. Uh, Even though I was increasing sales, what I was really good at and driving the business and, you know, taking 500 customers to the Red Sox game with open bar. I mean, it was so much fun. (laughs) But you know what? The business was almost faltering because I wasn't wasn't paying attention to the alarm bells going around me that I wasn't watching my numbers. I wasn't watching my inventory right. Uh, there were so many things I was doing wrong. So I decided to pull the ripcord and I settled for a single or maybe a double. I walked away with millions of dollars and uh, I was really happy because I could tell people now I was a successful entrepreneur who took a fa- basically a bankrupt company for 120000 and built it up to a $10 million revenue company. So that got me onto the playing field where I could, you know, I was with a whole new crowd of people and it was, it was exhilarating. Oh, that's excellent. Excellent story. And so as you move forward, you know, now you, you, you've had, you know, number of successes. Uh, you're, what, what's your current firm today? I have a company called Briggs Capital. And what we do is we represent buyers and sellers of businesses. We, uh, on certain occasions, we join in with the firms and we bring in investors to help them grow. And we do growth strategy. And uh, I like coaching entrepreneurs because, you know, you hear about all the success stories, the Zuckerbergs, all those people, but it's those people that I'm worried about. For every success, there's one that's you know, hemming and hawing along. And then there's five that are tanking. I want to protect the people that are making the bad mistakes and avoid what I've coined the highway to business hell. Yeah, that's um, it's, it's the truth. I mean, let's face it. The, the, the Zuckerbergs of this world are few and far between. And, you know, often it's like, it's, you know, yeah, the great idea, you know, um, almost winning the lottery, they've got something that takes off, but it doesn't happen that often. It's, there's usually just tons of work, there's failures, there's pitfalls, there's all the stuff that gets in the way. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's chapter and verse about being the right place at the right time. And the one thing that all these ladies and gentlemen do that, that are crushing like that is they work themselves to a frenzy. You know, uh, I remember I took this one course and I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And it was called Work, Love and Play. The balance between the three. Entrepreneurs are 80% work, 10% you know, love, and 10% play. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good balance for you for longevity. And so you really, uh, when I'm coaching entrepreneurs, we talk about trying to get the balance. In the beginning, the first two years, maybe 65 70% work. But you've got to get back to a decent lifestyle or you're going to burn out or you're going to not have a happy uh, significant other. Your kids are, going to, are not going to, you know, you're going to miss so much. And you're going to look back and say, what? I tried to make money and I made some good money, but everything else was a, was wreckage. 
So, uh, you know, as, as you describe that and something you and I have talked about a little bit offline, um, but, but the definition of success really comes into play here. I mean, you know, sometimes, especially for entrepreneurs early on, you know, you know, and you even said it yourself with a pet food company, it was all about the revenues, revenue, revenue, revenue. And you weren't looking at the bottom line. You weren't looking at other things, but success is, is more than just getting the revenues. You got to have the revenues. That's how you're going to get your company going. But, but how important is it for somebody to find what success looks like for them? And what are the components of success they should be considering? You know, success can be defined in many different ways. The first thing in success, and it's monetization of your idea. And we all know about that. And we can talk about that ad nauseum. But, uh, you know, you want to get to that level where the common denominator is how well did you do with your money? And that is the first measure of success. The second one, are you enjoying yourself? Is this the great hunt? Is this the, you know, the road to the Wizard of Oz for you? You know, where are you going on this trip of yours, your journey? And are you... Is it exhilarating or is it nauseating? I mean, uh, I, I went to the hospital twice thinking I was having heart attacks. And the second time the doctor pulled the, the defibrillator paddles out and he says, oh, Rod, back for another visit. <laughs> and I looked at him and uh, he says, Rod, why don't we just go outside? And we walked around a little bit and he says, Rod, because this, this is killing you. You got to get a grip, man. And, and you know what? I did get a grip after that. And, but I went two times in an ambulance to the hospital from the workplace. So I, I, it was very unpleasant, but it, uh, it was just part of my journey. Part of your journey. And, and, and today you're in such a great spot being able to help others out. And so, you know, as I kind of mentioned briefly in the in the intro, uh, I mean, you do some lecturing on entrepreneurship at Harvard, among other places. And um, you've now written two books. Um, you know, the, clearly you've got, a, you know, a value system about giving back. And that's what you're doing at this stage in your life. What was the impetus for writing? Uh, the first book was Winning at Entrepreneurship, right? Yes, yes. The yeah. first one was, you know, a blocking and tackling book and some storytelling in there, which I've dealt with thousands of entrepreneurs and people talk too much about the mechanics of the business and, too, you know, too much numbers, too much ratios, too much. It was storytelling and it, and it gave me the ability to, uh, to box it in for people that are beginners at this game. And I just don't want to see people throw their lives away and just get trashed. And, uh, you know, besides losing monetarily, you know, I get deeply concerned for people that are going to be depressed and emotionally exhausted at the side and not be able to get back into the game. So, you know, you got to know when to cut bait in entrepreneurship. We, again, we all hear about uh, the winners, but uh, for every winner, there's six people that have had a very difficult go of it. Well, so let me um, let me kind of um, you know uh, push you on that one a little bit. So, and, and and I'd love to know your opinion if you think I'm off base here. It's my impression when I think of of, of this the people I would define as successful entrepreneurs um, that. You know they've they've had a few false starts. They they've skinned their knees. You know you 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 fall off your bike a couple of times before you get your balance. Now I think you're right. I think they knew when to cut bait to to go and shift and do something else, but they never quit if that makes sense, right? And so so it was it was just onto another idea, onto another idea. And and I think real entrepreneurs have something that drives them until they find some level of success. Uh, my friend Tori, who was on the show you know previously, um, like you, the the last guy he ever actually worked for told told him point blank he said you know i just don't think you're cut out to ever work for anybody <laughs> you know and that was when he went out and struck out on his own he had he had two false starts before he hit you know before he hit a, a business that was really good so you know yes i agree that you got to know when to cut bait but you know i find that some people who have some entrepreneurial drive will cut bait and just go back to the corporate world and just take the easy way out um you know what are your well, thoughts you know, on that? You know, though, Chris, they can go back to the corporate world to regroup, rethink, recharge, examine what they did, you know, the goods and the bads, uh, understand maybe my business failed because of this. And so now my market segment's a little different. I could, if I did, if I had to do it over again, I could do it like this. So the people, you know, let them learn from their mistakes. And the, and the chances after your first failure of being successful the next time is almost double. Excellent. So you learn from your first one. And if you got it in you to do it again, you know, you're going to sit there and people admire the people that fail because the success stories, everyone just rolls in the dough and the money and, you know, the glamour of it. But for the people that have been caught in the bob wire and the people that have been chewed up by the game for to, to, to saddle up again 
They deserve our admiration and our respect, and they will be a much more seasoned veteran of entrepreneurship. And do you think so, you know, early failure actually is, an early failure can be a powerful thing. I mean, I, I've seen some situations where I've had, um, you know, I, I've met young people who've, who've won the, the, the investment lottery and they get millions of dollars for an idea and then it fails. And it's such a shock to their system. They don't even know which way to go. Yeah, but that's when, you, you know, every successful entrepreneur should be surrounded by a series of veteran uh, sponsors, veteran advisors. You know, you don't need your tax guy telling you about your growth strategy and you don't need your lawyer telling you about HR. You know, you need four or five different advisors and these advisors stay in their lanes and you're the quarterback of your advisors. Yeah, you know, it's such such good advice. And um, and it's it's one that, that I don't see taken, you know, often enough with the entrepreneur entrepreneurial companies we work with, you know, and we always try to get them out there. We become advisors, obviously, we get more and they move forward. But I've met so many of them that you're right, their advisor is their tax guy, you know, the couple of people they hire, but not necessarily the group of people that have taken them before. And I, I think that's the difference between some investment styles. I mean, I found that the companies that have venture capitalists are as investors are the kind that are, um, they're just being driven by the bottom line and they're not getting good guidance per se. They just have investors. Whereas I've also seen, you know, what we call angel investors who've invested in who are, who do become trusted advisors to the team and really help these guys out. And I think pick your your investors is very very important let's take a quick break we got we gotta um we gotta just uh let the radio station do its thing here for a couple minutes uh when we come back we'll continue our conversation become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america true results happen where culture meets execution The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity purpose and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better, grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Rod Robertson. Rod, uh, before we went to the break, uh, we were talking about the importance of having um, good advisors uh, to to, to help you out. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of advisors and types of advising and help and mentorship is one of those things that's 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 very very important and you know one of the things that that i know you talk about is this concept of reverse mentoring i've, I've actually never heard the term before and I, I love the concept i wonder if you would you know share that and uh, let's 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 talk about that for a couple of minutes you know in our lifetimes no matter what generation we are we all get nauseous when we hear the older person say well when i was your age or this is how we did it uh, 15 years ago when I dealt. Nobody cares. Nobody cares anymore. The pre-pandemic world is like the fall of the Roman Empire. Technology has pivoted all the companies that have survived, and they're surging ahead faster and scaling rapidly. And there's never been a better time to be a young entrepreneur or an entrepreneur of any time if you can adhere to the pivot to technology. And so with the pivot to technology for people over say over the age of 40, it doesn't come naturally. And so what do these people do? They continue to make the old mistakes. They're reactive instead of proactive. And they're following the leaders of different sectors because they're, they're not in the groove of technology. 
So I'm a big advocate of reverse mentorship and all, all the, the companies that I get to deal with. And uh, there's 15 companies so far this year that we've indoctrinated this into their company. We match young people, you know, millennials, Generation Z, all the young people who dig technology but don't have any depths of business experience. We hook them up with all the people with the experience who don't have any of the technology. And so it's no longer the one-way street. I mean, for me, I have a young uh, guy from uh, Facebook. You know, uh, he's, he left Facebook. He was getting impatient there. And he was shocked to find out what I didn't know. And I was, I was like the emperor without clothes. I yeah, also yeah. understood we're sitting there and uh, he, was, he, was, he was stunned. And uh, I said, let's keep this my dirty little secret between you and I. And we laughed. And uh, so he schools me up on a regular basis. We meet, we talk, he's, and we, we pick subject matters. And he's teaching me how to go to market, how to scale. He's teaching me how to use social media. And I just regurgitate what he says to other people in my form. And so the, I, I institute this at many of the companies and there's huge pushback because it's against the dignity, the dignitas, as Julius Caesar would say, mm-hmm. of the older managers. And But these young people, I say, don't have any mercy on them. I said, here's your time for some revenge. You know, grind them, let them do it the way they've been grinding you. And then I review the managers. And if I don't like what I'm hearing from the managers about what they're learning, I said, you know what? I don't think you're going to make it in the new world. The new world order is upon us post-pandemic. The government with all the PPP money has given us an opportunity to uh, like a four-month reprieve from uh, hard billing in regular life. They've injected this cash. Use it to pivot your company and your use of technology. Yeah, you know, there's a real danger that, that, that companies that are looking to go back to the way it was will be left behind. Oh, they're, they're toast. They're, they're not going to do it. Everyone knows that, uh, you know, this, this pivot to technology is allowing us to accelerate. And, you know, if you're going through social media and, and other ways, all of a sudden you're, if you're, your company has products out there, usually people come in the store, you order onesies, twosies, or you run an ad and you get eight or 10 or 12. Now, if you hit the, the right sponsor or the right influencer, all of a sudden you can get a thousand orders. How are you going to fulfill them? Do you have enough in inventory? How are you going to follow up? These people will crush you on social media if you don't fulfill the orders. If there's five bad postings about you out there when they're surfing the net looking for you, you might as well kiss your company goodbye. And when those complaints come up, how do you quickly jump on them to, uh, to quell them and to, make, uh, to mollify them and make sure that uh, they're, they're on your bad wagon and supporting you? It's a, it's a double-edged sword for sure. And if, if you're not in the groove and you don't have these, these tech-savvy people leading your company and uh, pushing the old face-to-face way of doing business out of the way, those companies are, are going to be up uh, on the jagged uh, rocks. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, I think about – you know the 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 concept of let's talk, let's talk about just being virtual for a few minutes and and um you know our audience knows that we even do these these programs virtually i mean think about it you know in the old days where you had to be in the studio i probably wouldn't have been able to have you as a guest or you could have called in and you know maybe it would have sounded okay zoom i think sounds better we utilize as live zoom feed but 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 it's really opened up the opportunity i've had guests from overseas we we've, we've done a lot of things but but even in our work um Almost all of my clients, you know, prior to the pandemic, when we would talk about, you know, allowing people to work from home with roles where they don't have to be in. I mean, obviously, you can't have a machine operator work from home, right? But, but you know, roles where they don't have to be in the office, we've talked about it, the savings in office space, the ability to hire people across country, you know, where you don't have to always have people, you know, in your state, you know, it was, it was getting harder and harder to hire. And they resisted, they resisted, they resisted. Now, boom, all of a sudden, they were forced to go remote. People had to be home. The pandemic restricted it. And they found, and, and I'm still finding there were a couple that are looking for ways to go back while others are saying, wow, you know what? We really can do this. We, why didn't we do this before? You know, we can save some money. We don't need as much office space. This, this works better. You know what? We're in California. We don't have to pay all those taxes. We can have, a, we can have people in North Dakota that work for us now. You know, it's, um, it's, it is a new world. It is in the world. And, you know, there's going to be a, a really strong undercurrent going back and forth as the, vi- the vaccines uh, kick in and the ownership who can't say anything. The owners, especially the owners over age 45, they're used to having everyone underfoot at the space. 
They're spending 30, 40, 50,000 a month on rent and nobody's in the space. And they know people at home are doing yoga at lunch instead of sitting in the conference room, going through their numbers with their boss. There's a, you know, the productive people have been very productive at home and even more so, but for the entry level people or the people, the, the young people starting up who have not been harnessed to machines before they're, they're sort of been, uh, they're, they don't, they're not being indoctrinated correctly the way that the business ownership wants them. You know, 46% of the people working at home now are saying uh, they'll switch companies if they, they, uh, if they can't continue to work at home and 31% said they'll absolutely quit. So you have the owners who want them to come back after the PPP and uh, the government bailout ends, and uh, they want the back what it was. It's they can't get everyone back, and for the people that want to continue living at home with their stretchy pants on, that's not going to happen either. Maybe for certain segments like uh, programmers, everyone else that uh, certain salespeople that can be quantitatively valued, but for a lot of people whose jobs are cultural or more qualitative than quantitative. These people have to be careful that they just don't get whacked someday in the future. When after June, the second quarter, second half of this year, business is going to be back, you know, living on their own without government. And what are they going to do? They're going to look at the least productive people and they're going to fire them. And what are the people that are going to get fired? Those are going to be the ones that are out of sight, out of mind at home. I was just with a 40 year old guy who has a great business He's waiting for us all his employees to come back. And he's, we're sitting there looking around this vacant uh, building and they're not coming back, but he's going to force them back or he's going to fire them slowly one at a time. And he has to be careful, but uh, he's like, I want my people back at work. He goes, maybe half time, a third in, a third flex, and a, a third can work at home. I can live with this, but I'm not going to live with 60, 70% of people at home. Uh, you know, and without me being able to supervise them. So the, the, the owners have to be careful and the people who are so comfortable working at home have to be very careful that, uh, and they should not be shocked if they're mailing it in from home and not working hard, they're, they're going to be the first ones to get cut. Well, and so, you know, there are, there are ways of measuring productivity now. I mean, what, what has also happened with the pandemic is there are, there are monitoring systems that can tell when somebody's on their computer, what they're doing. I mean, some, some of the, the companies that have people working at home are, are doing that. There's also the concept of pay per- performance. So you start shifting from the concept of I'm paying you for a certain number of hours to here are the metrics and you have to hit these metrics every single week. Um, you know, Amazon's done that for years and all of that, but still, I think the bigger issue and and something that that you've mentioned to me in the past is that as, as economies ebb and flow, the economy always has, has motion to it as well. And in downtimes when companies have to downsize, it's going to be out of sight, out of mind. I mean, it it will be, it will be those people that they're not aware of. And and they might even be sometimes more, more productive than the people that are in their office, but because they're not seeing them, they're the easiest ones to, Right. There's no emotional bond. There's yeah. no type. And so for those people, Chris, when you sit back and they're like, okay, so they, someone lose their job. Now you're interviewing on zoom. Uh, and so now you get hired and you have no attachment to the new people at work. And so now you're just a number. You're just some remote being out there in the workplace. You'll be the first one to get cut again. So they're, they're forecasting the, the people that get cut. Well, their careers are going to be jump, jump, jump. Uh, and they'll be plug and play for people. And it, it, it could be a, a very bad cycle or merry-go-round to get on. So, you know, we'd like to caution people that uh, are snug at home, working, working, that maybe once a week you should go to the office if it's appropriate. Get some FaceTime with everyone. You know, be proactive and just don't hide from your bosses or your fellow workers. Be proactive with everyone. Go out uh, as things loosen up, uh, meet somebody for lunch or go for a walk. Do something, but face-to-face time is not gone. And uh, the, the people that are doing the FaceTime thing are the ones, uh, if, if it's a toss-up, who's going to get canned? Those are the people that are going to get, uh, they're going to stick. Now, we're still human beings and we still need some level of physical interaction. Maybe a hundred years from now, it might change again. 
Um, but there will be there will still be some of that. Um, but there are other shifts that are happening in the workplace. So, you know, um, so what's this whole thing about pets now coming in the workplace? I mean, I'm seeing pets everywhere. I'm seeing pets on airplanes, at least when I was flying a lot. I mean, people, it's no longer the pets stay at home. So um, what are you seeing from that standpoint? Well, um, since, you know, you know, uh, my secret, I owned a pet supply company. I love dogs and uh, cats too, but dogs are my thing. So I'm very interested in this, but it, it, it sort of turned out, it started as sort of like a joke or people having their pet day at work. But now if you think about it, an extra, I don't know exactly numbers, 10 million more dogs and cats were bought in the last year than usually. So you can't go out and find a good dog or a cat with a purebred. They're hard now. You try to go out there, you'd be surprised. And so now all these people have onboarded this, this nurturing system that they have to go through while they're working from home. And now all of a sudden they have to go back to work and they have the dog and the cat. And they're like, oh my God, they, they, I got to get a dog sitter. I got to do this. So the key employers and uh, employees are saying, you know what? I have almost like a child here and uh, I don't want to come back to work. I would, I'd rather, this is forcing me to work at home. So we talk to owners about uh, having, uh, you know, pet days, uh, giving money for pet walkers, having, uh, setting up like pet gardens at, at work where they can bring their pets in. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a joke, but it isn't because you're going to lose some cutting edge people because they, they, they want to be with their dog or their cat and they don't want to, or they're going to have to re what there's a term out there, rehome the pet. And all of a sudden they got to give up their baby. This is a, a mortal uh, thing for a lot of people, and it's an emotional wrenching affair. And so if they're plugging along at the job and uh, and they have to give up their pet or there's another one out there where they can have their pet, I think they're going to jump. And so people are really answering the call. And uh, I, I talk about this quite a bit, and uh, it started off as almost farcical, yeah. but now it, it's, it's, it's a part of the workforce now. Yeah, you know, and and I have all these images, you know. So one of the, one of the funny things here, I am. I'm at home. We've got two dogs, and um, you know, running the running the show here at home as opposed to in the studio, I got to be sensitive that the dogs aren't barking during the show, mm-hmm. and um, and it makes me wonder if I'm taking my pet into the office. You know, do you have to worry about you know pet interactions with other people and barking and and you know. The, Hey, your pet's got to, maybe that's when you take lunch, you got to take the dog out for a, you know, for a walk and you got, you have to do something. Maybe that's good for us physically also, but what are some of those pitfalls? In regards to the pets at home? Well, pets at the office. Oh, well, I mean, we could imagine one's got a, you know, starting to set up the tripod, everyone's going to run for the door. And so uh, what the, the pets at work, I mean, they're, they're, they can be mayhem, but it also for the people there's all these studies out there that show that the people that don't have pets love having the pets in the office. And uh, I had this one guy who is a bit of a crab apple, old school guy. He had all these millennials there. You know, I, I took from his budget and I bought him a huge parakeet and I put it outside of his office. And so he has a pet too. At first he was like, thunderstruck, but now all the employees are digging them. And, you know, you got to break these boundaries. You got to break bread with your people, but you'll, you'll, you'll see that 30% of the people that uh, will want to bring their pets to work and show them off. And they're, they're like their children. So uh, it's, it's a big game and it's a serious game and uh, nobody wants to rehome their animal. They just took in. Well, and, and that's, I think, one of many, many things that are, that are happening, you know, as, as, as we talk about the generations and, you know, uh, not just us, but, you know, the millennials, the, um, the Gen Z's now that are in, you know, they're, they're looking for a lot out of the workplace to come in. And so pets are, are one of them, but also, you know, environmentally conscious companies, green companies, you know, um, just, just a number of other aspects that, that our workplace is, is shifting. Um, so anyway, uh, here we are, we're at the end of another segment. So they go by quickly. Let's, um, let's take a quick break. We will be back in just one minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. 
The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better, grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with with Rod Robertson. Rod, um, you know, we were talking a lot about working remote, and you highlight a lot of this in, in your latest book, uh, The Human Vector, which which I think is one that, that our audience would be really interested in. But you also talk quite a bit about, um, you know, working overseas. You, you know, you yourself are one of the few people I know um, that, that, you know, from an entrepreneurial state, the, what you're doing, there's a lot of international flair, a lot of, a lot of things going on. And here we are in the United States. We, we have a, probably the second largest population or growing to be the second largest population in the U.S. is the Hispanic population. These are people that are trying to do business cross-border. Lots going on here. Um, I wonder, you know, if you can share some of your, your stories and thoughts about how to be successful at doing business overseas or cross-border and, and how do we help um, our Latin listeners out a little bit with, with getting better at this? You know, the, 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 the cross-border game, uh, there was always different boundaries that prohibited with anything from customs to always doing it paper and pen. Uh, you know, it, it was just a different ball game. But now it's a wide open field. But with the wide open field of international business, uh, you know, it's, it's brought mayhem to the playing field. You know, uh, we always heard about offshore banking, uh, where, you know, the illegal counts in Cyprus and, and the Cayman Islands, Panama. Well, all the, it was all true. But the U.S. government has gone out and shut down the Caymans. It, uh, you know, I have uh, an office in Panama. That we, we closed our bank account there. There used to be. 30,000 uh, offshore bank accounts in Panama. Now there's uh, like 500 because they're cutting everything down. Everything has to be above board now dealing with international money back and forth. And, uh, and uh, the, the, the age of technology is allowing our government to track everything quickly. So you can't get away with it like you used to. So if you want to do business overseas, I, I think that you're, well, first of all, the whole outside of the world uh, is getting ravaged by the uh, virus right now. So there's nothing going on. But if you were planning uh, to look at doing business overseas, you know, the, the, the Latino world, uh, the, the Latin world is just awesome to do business with. They revere the United States and our educational systems. The upper echelons of all the, the, the countries from Mexico to Guatemala, all the way down the feeding chain send their children to uh, schools in the United States. And so they are used to looking at the United States a little differently than certainly Asia, China, and Europe, who have a certain level of disdain for us or combative. We, we are one with our Latino brothers up and down from here to Argentina. And uh, it's a great place to do business. And with uh, the Latin explosion in the United States and uh, you know the hardworking people that they are, uh, we, we, we really enjoy doing business with them. And, uh, uh, I, I really recommend that, uh, you know, you, if you're looking to extend your business, the Latin world is the place to go. And uh, there's just this whole untapped resource up and down from here. Uh, we're doing great work down in uh, Guatemala. I didn't know much about Guatemala, but, you know, 28 million people all watching U.S. TV. Everything's going on down there. And uh, it's great. And once the, this virus subsides, uh, it'll be longer down there because there's no vaccines anywhere. They have the the Russian Sputnik, which is not doing well. And now the Chinese who had doled out millions of hundreds, uh, tens of millions of shots to all their little 
proxy countries, that's that they're shutting that down. So uh, the rest of the world is going to be about a year behind us with the vaccine. And uh, so it's going to be tough to do business. So how, how does, how does a, an entrepreneur who has only ever done work here in the United States um, tap into that? I mean, how, how do you actually do, how do you get started in another country? You know, you, you have to, to do business in another country without partnering with an individual over there is folly. I mean, I like uh, when I started in Panama, now, uh, you know, I own a, a fairly good sized ranching operation down there that's suffering. And we've done a lot of business down there, but I found a local partner and him and I look at the books together. We do everything. And he is extremely happy that uh, I brought this American machine down there to him and he's making money off that he never could on his own. And then I met this gentleman uh, in Belarus who I've just recently wrote a, a, a book with Belarus, a small country on, uh, to, to the side of Russia. And, uh, this guy is unbelievable. He's 36 years old, started 15 companies over there and he's developed a lean management style book hmm. and this, uh, and methodology that he's put through all these tech companies over there. And we brought it to the United States and we have 15,000 business coaches deploying this methodology, uh, throughout North and, and uh, Latin America. And it teaches you how to run your organization lean and mean and to have people drink the company Kool-Aid. So I, where did I meet him? I met him uh, online somewhere. I, I'm meeting people. I'm going uh, on the book tour. I'm going to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. I'm heading off to Belarus, Ukraine, Russia. Uh, we're bringing a book out in Russian. And uh, it just, for me, your brain should have no boundaries. The world literally is one humanity now. There are certain things, but... You just got to be bold and think out of the box, but don't try to do business in another country uh, if you don't have a partner. You know, uh, the, the way you describe that made me think of, of a concept we try to teach, and that's the difference between being uh, an international company and a global company. And I think same thing with thinking. You know, international thinking really means that you take your thinking everywhere you go and expect everybody to adapt. You're, you're international, you're going around to different countries, but it's, you know, it's the same thing. And so, for, you know, if you're an American company that's operating internationally, you know, you're, you're not taking those countries, but, but we really have to be global thinkers. You know, you have to go, you have to go there with, with them in mind, with what their needs are, with how they operate. You have to adapt to their style. And I don't know how you do that without a partner. You can't like, uh, I, I just invested in this company, an education company. They, they were telling me there's 200 million people in China who want an online college degree that uh, they never could thought of doing this before at a lower expense, obviously, than the United States. So here's 200 million consumers who are going to learn about the United States, about the world economies, everything. China is a massive juggernaut and they're just getting bigger and stronger some, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, a lot of stress between the uh, United States and China now, a lot of it very well deserved. And, uh, but you know what, working with those people is something that we should do because uh, we're going to work with them or against them. And uh, yeah. they have their part of the world. We have ours and they're, they're growing and uh, they're flexing their muscles and it's going to be, uh, we, we're going to have to accommodate them. There's no getting away from it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, one other topic, uh, while we have a few minutes left, um, you know, when you shared your story early on, you talked about, you know, leaving and taking the, taking the, the, the paycheck that was, you know, what was in the small print, if you will. And you went and bought a a troubled pet food company, Uh, you know, and, and certainly one way to get into a business is to buy one. Um, given the markets today, is this a good or a bad time to be considering that? I mean, you know, when, when, you know, and how do you know what, what a good opportunity is? Well, for me, this is the most fun and most important thing that we're going to discuss today that I really like discussing. People are lamenting, crying every day. There's negative news 24 seven blaring from the media machines, but for would be entrepreneurs, you just have to think about it. The playing field just got swept clean all the old legacy businesses that imagine if you bought a business two years ago, you would be, you'd be done right now. And everything you would have dreamed. I feel really bad for everyone that bought into businesses in the last two years. And I feel, you know, happy for the people that sold in the last year and a half before this maelstrom fell upon us. 
And, uh, but it's a great time now to, to buy a business. There's huge levels of money that will back entrepreneurs and new businesses. And mostly though, they're looking to find things that are tech enabled. So now a lot of the face-to-face legacy businesses have been dusted off and pushed to the 20% of business have just faltered. 20% now are barely breaking even being supported by the government. So there's whole enormous market sectors that have vanished, but out of that rubble, there's new tech ways to do it. Out of that 40% of the businesses there, 15% will be recreated in some fashion and thrive. And so if you can find that uh, older advisors, if you're a youngster, you know, a young person looking to, to get your first entrepreneurial company, you know, find some older people that can give you the old legacy business and you be bold with your thinking and spin it into a tech game and you get after it and the money's out there. So it's, it's the, the best time ever to be uh, out there trying to interest rates are low. It just goes on and on. The, you know, people now aren't sitting at companies for 30 years. You can go to somebody who's remote working and they're bored out of their brain doing their job. Say, Hey, I got something here. You want to take a role with me into entrepreneurship? Those people are like, what? Okay. You know, I mean, people are up for something new now and the world's changing. And it's not like the other day where you're waiting for the, like my dad waiting for his 30 year watch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, okay. So you've got the itch to buy a company. What's the first step? The first step is to target what you want to do. Like I did with the pet company. Uh, you know, I was like, I love dogs. I wonder, well, you know, I don't want to sell a widget and I don't want to sell, you know, no, no, I just, you know, so I went after the pet game. I mean, if you're deep into technology and social media, there's different ways. If you love sports, there's so many new sports uh, angles coming out there, fitness, training. You know, one thing to be careful of is buying a franchise now. This, you know, the, the franchise used to be hot, but they're mostly suffering dramatically because they were face to face. The gym, anything else, you know, that we you can just look at all the fa- uh, the food franchise, all of them are suffering. So the, be very, very careful if you're looking at a franchise. Buying a franchise is like buying a job, but make sure you're buying a good job because you really can't sell the franchise only to other people that, uh, that may be your neighboring geographic footprint person. Right. So, uh, you know, find what you want to do, you know, develop your own little strategy, get what your strength is, find other people to help you build it, build out a spreadsheet, try to understand the numbers, keep poking around, gathering data and articles. And then when it comes time, then you go talk to the investors. Excellent. Excellent. Um, what else? So, so, you know, any, any parting thoughts, we've got a couple minutes left before we have to wrap the show. And, um, you know, I, I guess one thought that I had in mind goes back to something you said earlier as well is entrepreneurship, something that can be learned or are, do you have to be born with a little something? Can anybody truly be a successful entrepreneur? You know, to be the, of course, and, but to do it by yourself and to be the lead dog and just wrap the whole thing around you, you have to be genetically predisposed to stress levels, to being able to take the beating, to, you know, you have to come from a certain environment. But if if you want to be an entrepreneur and you're an engineer or you're an HR and you know really good people and you can onboard people, join three or four people, join a partnership. You know, you don't have to own 100% of the company. Owning 10% of a business is awesome. That means there's 90% of the other business that's going to be working with you. You just stay to your, your, your alley, to your strength, look to alleys on either side and try to learn as much as you can. But you know, if, if you're a zebra, don't try to be a lion. And if you're a lion, you know, just don't be a zebra. So you just got to be who you are and understand who you are. And you can do this by getting great advisors to check you out and tell you what your strengths and weaknesses are. I can't stress that enough to, and then, you know, in the beginning, the advisors, you know, I always like doing it because I, I for whatever reason, uh, over the years, I admire everyone out in the field of battle. But I, I just wanted to tear people from trying not to be a zebra mm-hmm. if they're not one. And uh, let's let's get out there and find those advisors. And, you know, at first they'll work for free. But you know what? Why not? Why not throw a critical advisor three percent of your company? You don't have the cash flow, but you need his advice. And, uh, but again, don't have your lawyer do the growth strategy or your CPA, 
you know, talk about new technology. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're just not the right people. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, gotta have the right people, the right seats, just like employees. Um, yep. You know, uh, as we're wrapping up here, so the books again are Winning in Entrepreneurship, that was the first one, and The Human Vector, uh, I'm assuming available on Amazon? Yeah, you know, Amazon, for better or worse, you know, God bless them or God hate them, they're with 67% of the sales. And it's really interesting. Out of those 67%, people are telling me like 55% are, are Kindle. Yep. You know, the, 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 the book in the hand just uh, isn't making it. And uh, it's, 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 it's tough go for all the indie uh, stores and everything. And, uh, we wish them the best. And uh, uh, you know, they got to, they got to battle Amazon and uh, you know, that's, that's their fight. And we've had this same experience with our book, you know, that, that, that people want the Amazon versions and, and, and actually I just donated a whole bunch of books recently because we want more shelf space and you know, it, it it's the direction it's going. I, I'm going to miss holding that, 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 piece of paper that that group of paper in my hand but um but in in a while we won't have paper on anything anymore yeah it's just the way it's going to be and we all i go to meetings now with the young people at these uh tech centers and forums i pull out a pad of paper everyone starts laughing at me they, they roll in their eyes if you show a pen or a pad of paper and that some of these places i'm going it's it's death to start with yeah, I know it's it's hilarious. Um, well, that's uh, that's it for our time, Rod. I, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you joining us. Hey, it was big fun, and uh, you know, I, I hope I, I could give some people some insights into the world of entrepreneurship. That's been excellent, and it's it's been a great conversation. Um, thank you again. And if anybody ever wants to get a hold of, of Rod, you're welcome to reach out. Uh, you can reach out to us through the radio station, and, and we'll put you in contact. Uh, until next week, I hope everybody has a great week, and uh, we'll have another good show coming at you. So stay tuned, and um, see you soon. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.